Greetings, dear listeners. Before we get started, a reminder to head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live and consider becoming a paying subscriber if you're not one yet. You'll get access to, among other things, the full conversation, as well as other subscriber-only benefits. And don't forget to give us a like and review on your favorite podcast app. With all that out of the way, on to the show. highlighted two zeitgeisty pieces and and i gotta say christine i mean I, I i think they're both rightly zeitgeisty pieces for sure but um i i i i'm transfixed by the emily gould piece <laughs> yeah in, in the most negative way possible i'm transfixed by it of course i mean i think that was I think that was a game plan, but say more. What are you, why are you transfixed? Well, I mean, um, I guess let's just give listeners... Let's give the uh, people an outline. The, yeah, I mean, it's, it's called The Lure of Divorce. It came out in New York Magazine, The Cut, which is what? It's like they're... It's their kind of fashion culture, vaguely women's uh, section. Mm. And it is actually apparently the the section of New York Magazine that is actually growing the fastest. And in mm. fact, they added a bunch of writers and a bunch of editors this year, as as we both know, journalism was kind of falling apart at the seams in every other outlet. So, but so again, like I I I, I don't read it, but it's it's uh, it's like a lifestyle sort of culture. Is it reviews or is it is it? Yeah, I would say it's their lifestyle section. Mm -hmm. So it does it has reviews, it has culture stuff, um, it has personal essays like these. Well, that's what I mean. I want to talk about is like I mean you 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 mentioned this in your in your Monday note. Uh, which listeners hopefully will have read at this point when this is coming out. Um, but it is a, it's a, it's, it's a sort of like, it's, well, it's a personal piece. It's a personal essay <laughs> of sorts. And I, I think I want to talk about that a little bit, but let's give people a little bit more of an outline of like what this is. First, Emily Gould. I actually had to Google a bit. I remember her from Gawker. Yeah. And then I didn't remember that she apparently post Gawker did some big New York Times magazine thing which mm -hmm. I came across in my research. Say a little bit more about Emily Gould for like sticks in the mud like me who, who you know, only vaguely remember her as the editor-in-chief of Gawker at a, one point in her career. Yeah. What is there to say about her? I mean, she's she's sort of been the the er example of like literary, bloggy, hipster Brooklyn liberals for yeah. decades at this point. Um, she was an early editor at Gawker and was sort of their woman about town and became famous for writing just really classic, like snarky Gawker, Gawker pieces yeah. and then was both wildly reviled and envied by everyone else who wished that they were writing on the Internet, basically. Um, so that's sort of where she burst out onto the scene. She ended up founding or co-founding um, a feminist book imprint um, I am blanking on what it's called right Emily now. Emily Books. I read about this. Oh, okay. Emily Books. Again, self-referential. She thinks <laughs> yeah. she's very, very self, high self-regard, but yeah, go on. Right. But I mean, it, uh, that did she well. had a lot of fans. Yeah. That imprinted well. Um, she's continued to write in a number of places. 
She's written features for The New Yorker. As you said, she's been in The New York Times. Um, now she writes extremely long pieces for New York Magazine about the vagaries of her life with her husband and children. And then her husband. So she she married in, again, a sort of example of the incestuous New York literary scene, <laughs> uh, Keith Gessen, who is a writer, another well-known writer, um, who was also the co-founder of N Plus One magazine, Famous. which was famously just like the real hip literary magazine. It's still around, isn't it? I mean, yeah, 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 it's definitely still around. Um, but, you know, if you think of magazines like The Point or The Drift, et cetera, N Plus One was kind of the first it's or like, feels like the first of the the sort of modern iteration of the New York culture. Modern mag. in the sense that it was like the first sort of like felt like uh, they got the Internet. Right. I mean, even though it was like a, a long form magazine, it flourished online. And, yeah. and it was for that like online generation doing what literary magazines in New York did forever. But just like in the modern form. Right. Right. Exactly. It was online, but they also have. And still have a pretty handsome print product. But sure. I just remember, you know, like when I lived in New York before I moved to D.C. and was like kind of trying to do literary things, you always wanted to go to an N plus one party, right? Because people would be smoking indoors and there would be like guys wearing black T-shirts who had like opinions on infinite jest. Hmm. That, that's not what I want yeah. right now. <laughs> not right now. Back then, young Christine. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. Early 20s Christine, though, was thought you know, that was where to be. Right. Um, it was just a scene and gold was kind of one of the stars of it basically. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I mean, th there's that, there's that, that like I found transfixing in the negative sense, which is that New York thing, which is just sort of coursing through this article. It's, and it's such a specific, <sighs> like anyone who is not from New York, I mean, this is why it was in New York magazine. Of course. But would be reading this and being like, what? What? But you know what I <laughs> what mean? Like, people's problems? I grew up on Long Island. I used to go to New York City. Like, New York represented something to me. And, like, I, 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 like, I, but I never lived that like you did in your 20s. I was in Baltimore in my 20s, like, living a different kind of life. And, and, um, uh, so I never get the appeal of it, you know, of that sort of thing. I mean, I guess, I guess, you know, when I was in my 20s and sort of reading about the New York of the mid 20th century, there was an appeal of some sort of mm -hmm. something there or maybe through music and, you know, like Velvet Underground and Andy Warhol and all of that. You sort of have that sense of like, OK, this is appealing. But 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 yeah, like the N plus one thing and that whole scene, I, both I'm, I'm too old for it. And also just sort of like by that point, I'd already developed a healthy contempt for New York. <laughs> And, and so, so, uh, all of it is just, is just overwhelming, but you know what it is. Okay. So, so Gould pioneers this kind of style of writing at Gawker and mm -hmm. then subsequently now, again, like arguably it's, it's, you know, descended. I don't know if anyone's written that I'm sure they have like basically Hunter Thompson invents all of this in the sixties, that like hyper-personal kind of journalism. Right. And it's just mm -hmm. like adopted everywhere. So anyway, she popularizes that. Um, but what's striking about this essay, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, you know, I guess she's what, 40? I think it's, it's, it's. Yeah, it says she turned 41. 41. Or no, or did, no, well, I think she turned 41. She mentions that in the essay. So she's in her early 40s. And also, I'm going to push back really quickly. Yeah, like Hunter on. S. Thompson, 
uh, did popularize hyper-personal essays in a sense. But actually, I think that Gold is a descendant of a newer writer, uh, Elizabeth Wurzel of mm. Prozac Nation. Oh, yes, that's um, right. And is she, Gold was sort of doing her own thing and part of that New York scene. Yeah, it was also like you would want to go to the N plus one party and then you'd also want to go to the Paris Review party. Mm. And like those were the two scenes. Um, but yeah, Gold was doing her thing right after, sort of right after Elizabeth Wurzel. And then in the, I guess, early, late 20, late 2000s, early 2010s, there was just a boom in personal essays, sort of unfortunately and often regrettably over personal essays from right. female writers that manifested, especially in the website Exo Jane. Did you ever visit this? No. This, this is not like a, this is not a website that Demir would have visited. No, no. Um, but there was just a genre of just like these insanely personal and revealing, like, I did heroin for three weeks and got Botox and this is my story. And it's like published and they pay the writer $200 or less and spray it all over the internet. And that was just like a thing that the, was happening. There was a, there was a, I mean, just the, the heroin thing. Wasn't there someone who, who wrote, I don't think it was Wurzel who wrote the book about going to Harvard and like getting a nasty heroin habit. And I, then like, Oh man, and it was a woman. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> well, uh, so speaking of that, like era of like weird craft that would just sort of right. like. Well, Wurzel. I mean, she I wrote about Wurzel. how she was addicted to antidepressants. She did go to Harvard Law School, though. In the end, whatever this was, Kat Marnell wrote a book called "How to Murder Your Life" mm -hmm. that came out of her being uh, the ostensible beauty columnist for Exojane, but basically writing all of these pieces about how she was a drug addict and ruining her life and then just publishing them live to the site. Um, I'm sure there was someone who had a heroin addiction at Harvard. I just remember that. that it was like totally Harvard or sense. Yale. It was like I, I picked up a nasty heroin habit and then like went on to, I don't know, work in some high-powered, again, field. And then finally it all fell apart. Like the heroin caught up with her, I think. Yeah. I, that <laughs> As it does. That might have been Marnell. <laughs> I don't know if she went to Harvard, but it was definitely... Sorry, this is just, this is a side note. I'm thinking about all these pieces that I read when they were coming out. She grew up like really privileged in New York. I don't know where she went to school, but she managed like a high powered beauty advisory role at uh, Vogue or like some major Condé Nast publication. And then it fell apart because she had a drug addiction right, <laughs> and then she right. wrote a book about it. Right. So it, all of this, yeah, there is some version of this everywhere at the time. Uh, and Gold was descended of it and part of it well so so again you know we're doing like a, a long lead in to this essay um but it's an essay uh about this woman emily gold writing about herself um clearly unhappy with her marriage after had it seems like reasonably young kids i don't know how many years at this point but like one or two young kids uh to keith Gesson. She's unhappy with her life, increasingly convinced she hates her husband, gets her shrink to give her more SSRIs than she's normally on the cocktail of. And that, this sends Which is her, another story. Well, exactly. I mean, there's so much of this that's upsetting and like, a, and, 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 and sort of annoying in so many levels, but you know, and then she, uh, basically, uh, is diagnosed with bipolar disorder as she's spending money like a maniac and 
um, you know, decides at one point in a fit of pique to just like leave her family. Her shrink tells her, check yourself into a, you know, uh, insane asylum. Uh, <laughs> a psychiatric institution. To be she self-institutionalizes, but enough of an institution that they won't let her out unless, you know, she passes some criteria. So I don't know. I think an asylum is, is, is it's, it's a fair retrograde sort of term for it. Uh, they fill her with more drugs like lithium, take her, get her off this, this bipolar disorder. And then she goes back to salvage, not salvage this marriage. Um, You're blown up. Um, yeah, my Maps app is is still on. I'm sorry about that, team. <laughs> That's still, fine. It's directing me to Demir's living room still. Yeah. Anyway, um, the the uh, so the, I mean the 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 striking thing though is that that like this essay gets written at all because it it ends up in a place where you know as traumatic and horrible as it is and whatever you know judgments one feels one wants to pass on any of the of the people. And I think that's sort of the point of these essays to like draw out your judgmentalism, your inner, your inner scold. This is why everyone's clicking on it and then talking about it. Mm -hmm. But still like the part that to me is most galling about the whole thing that this essay gets written at all. And this gets back to the whole sort of personal essay thing, but especially this is just like on a meta level, it's just sort of, it's all packed in, right? She's trying to save this marriage or at least giving a half Ooh. effort or they're, they're, tr they're working at it. And then, like, she goes to write this essay, which is just, just awful on every on every level for both of them. And it's it's, uh, I mean, one can maybe assume that she told Keith Gessen, "I'm going to do this." Maybe she even showed him the essay, and he was like, "Fine, go ahead. You need this." I'm rambling here, but there's so many <laughs> things that's wrong about that. It's like it's this concept of writing as therapy, perhaps. Perhaps this was even like the counselors told them this is a good idea. And he was probably, honey, you do what you need to do. There's, there's the whole sort of thing of like oversharing. I don't, I didn't need to know anything that was in this essay, including the geyser of blood that shot out of her. That was apparently like written about in Keith Gesson's book about the, her giving birth like to their kids. Like they're all writing too much. Good Lord. <laughs> good Lord. And, and I, yeah, I don't know, Christine, like... I don't know where to take it from, but it, it's just like, to me, the main question is like, why, why do we write and why, why should, when should we not write? I guess. <laughs> do you have thoughts on that? Yeah. Uh, wow. That, I mean, not to be kind of useless in this conversation, but that's, that's a huge question. I mean, I'll backtrack a little bit mm. and say a few things that, that stood out to me about this piece and also that are worth mentioning for those who haven't read it. So. Gold is over-prescribed over her antidepressants, becomes manic, is checked into an institution, stays there for three weeks, tells her husband that she's going to divorce him, also cheats on him, mm -hmm. apparently with someone else, which she just sort of like mentions as an just aside. Just as an aside, towards the end. <laughs> just like randomly. Just, that's uh, bad editing there, because that, that should have been introduced earlier, but But there on. was so much to introduce. Yeah. Um, she comes out of the institution, and then she... And her husband live in New York and, you know, they're ostensibly famous writers in some sense, but are still writers who live in New York and not that wealthy. And so they're, they can't really separate. They can't afford to have two apartments. So they just live together in separate rooms for a while. And she talks about how Keith, her husband, is really sad, basically, but still takes care of her. And eventually 
they sort of get closer again. First, they like one night they watch a TV show together, you know, then they, you know, spend more time together, eventually end up having sex and seeing a couples therapist and they stay together. So she writes about all of this. Also, I do have to say that interspersed in this like insane confessional is a a really good run through of sort of recent divorce literature, both fictional and non-fictional. Um, also horrifying to me, but you can talk to about oh, those because you've read some of these books. I've not read any of I them. I have. I have, unfortunately. Um, yeah. So she, she describes all of this in a way that, as you put it, Demir, it's excruciating. Like I, I personally, I hate this for her husband. Yeah. <laughs> I hate it for him. But I have a question for that too. Yeah. To you as a woman, but like. Yeah. And, but also an interesting thing about it is unlike a lot of confessional literature, including many of the divorce memoirs that she sort of off the cuff reviews in this piece, she doesn't end up getting divorced. Right. They just stay together at the end. And a fascinating thing also about this piece is both that unlike what you would assume from the sort of Brooklynite zeitgeist in which she lives, she doesn't like become polyamorous and leave her marriage, which seems to be everyone's solution these days. Yeah. They just stay married. And that's that's what happened. But she also doesn't really evince ever feeling bad <laughs> for anything that she does. And like, even as she stays in her marriage, she's still like, I'm a better writer than him. I just take care of the kids too much. And so I don't have time to ruin him <laughs> in the, I don't know, the cage match of writing. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. So there are just like some side notes. I mean, there's a question of why this is written at all. There's also what makes it different from the, frankly, rash of confessional writing that we seem to be going through right now. And I think, what does it just say about the times in which we live, that this is what's being written, that this is what's being kind of forced upon us? Yeah. I think, I mean, to to go back to your your question about, like, why are we writing? What is this writing for? I would almost I would almost believe what you were saying about it being therapeutic, except so, nothing is learned. <laughs> like no what happens. Well, right. Well th- th- there's that. But I mean I, I think it's I, therapeutic. It's not therapy for us. I think it's some sort of I think I could imagine her therapist saying, You should do this. But again, it's it's you know it's 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 the core problem of a lot of this, I think, personal essay writing, which I don't think I've ever really indulged in, which is that, look, you, you create like a character out of yourself, right? You're trying to then, you're, you're expected, as you said in your Monday note, you're expected, you're, you're, there's supposed to be some sort of arc of learning. And I, I think that didn't bother me that, that she didn't learn anything. I mean, it's, it's more like, um, like, why did I have to, I mean, I, I didn't have to. I mean, I, I read it only because you put it in your Monday note and you said you wanted to talk about it today. But like, I, 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 I certainly wouldn't have read this and like I would have bailed out way sooner in any other sort of situation. <laughs> Could you have bailed out yeah, though? Like yeah. once you get into it, you're just like, what is going no, on? Like, what's no, happening? No, like, I mean, I, you know, here's the thing. I feel like I, I, with only remembering her as vaguely as the former Gawker editor, I was like, I don't like her. I don't really want to know anything more about her. But, you know, here's the thing that comes out of the, the thing. This is what I wanted to ask you before we talk about writing some more. How much do you think this is like Keith Gesson's fault? 
in the sense that like you know everyone's like did he bring this down upon himself no but you know what i mean like like he clearly you know the the very sort of um charitable way to read it is like you know he's discovered that you know his wife's got substance abuse problems and like you know depression problems and she's like treating and et cetera, et cetera. And he's like sticking by her. And, and even as she has this like terrible episode, he's very patient and he's there and like, that's the nice way to look at it. But it's like, you know, she has a, a lot of contempt for him. And I wonder yeah. where that contempt comes from. It can't just like come, it's not just her psychosis, right? Like, could it be that like, that actually it's the fact that he's a total, like he can get rolled and he gets rolled at the end by her. And she's, as you said, learned nothing. She is even more entitled and perhaps even like lazier by the sound of things. She's like my leisure and my health while like fobbing off half the work that she was doing in the family already. So he's taken on more. He still like seems like the breadwinner in all of this. He's just taken all of it. You know what I mean? Like he never. And I wonder if that has something to do with it. So I ask you as a woman, like <laughs> if you'd like take another look at Keith Gessen, because I know like the first impulse is to say saintly man. Yeah. Standing by his like broken, frail, like crooked timber woman, but like there's something else going on here. And are I you, think are it, you saying that Keith Gesson should have kept uh, a leash on his wife? Is that what you're trying no, to tell I, me? No, I, I think I think at some point though, you're, you're like you don't get to treat me that way. You know, at some point in their relationship, you're like, hey, hold on a second here. You know, we're we're in this together. Like, back off. Like, you know, or at least like. There's there's a lot simmering in here, clearly, in this yes. relationship that's, like, not getting addressed. And and partly, she sounds like a terrible person, of course, but, like, you know what? Like, you're in a relationship with a terrible person. You're like, hey, listen, you know, we're in this thing together. I don't like this at this point. And you do that at some point, presumably. And uh, and I, I don't know. It seems like that, that's my that's the other takeaway from her. Like, absolutely, like, you know, who would I rather be stuck with on a desert island by the sound of this probably keith gesson rather than emily gould <laughs> but but that said i don't think he would I, at least bring you a gluten-free egg sandwich but you, you know, know what i mean don't you think that there's something like unappealing about this and i take another look at this character that comes out in this don't you think you might have some contempt for him as well yes so okay wow there's there are a lot of there are a lot of layers here okay the personal question of just what is going on in their relationship and who we should hate the most yeah. or blame the most. Yeah. So one of the interesting things about this genre of confessional literature is that it, it sort of exposes the, I don't know, the mores, the ethics of like this particular set slash type of people. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that people find like frustrating that compels them to sort of hate read these pieces. It's like you're just watching them be stupid mm. or terrible and then ask to relate like, oh, you know, this happens to everyone. We have a psychotic break and cheat on our husbands and then write about it like, right, you do this. And it's right. like, no, I don't do this because I'm a human person <laughs> who has like some sense of restraint. Or, you know, in Keith Gessen's, I guess he's just being written about in this. It's sort of like, well, like, Oh, my wife like cheated on me and, you know, like abandoned me and our, our young son because she had feelings that I was providing too much, that I was too successful for her. And she was offended by the fact that I was successful. I'm like, I don't know. I guess I just like stayed around to deal with that. Wouldn't you? And it's like, no, we wouldn't. Get up, man. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, what are, yeah. What's wrong with you? Now, to but, be fair, we don't know his side of the story. No, She's writing this. It's we, totally one-sided on this. We don't know his side of the story. Uh, I will say that he also wrote this book that came out last 
last year that is mentioned in this piece that's part of her resentment towards him is because they have this young son. He wrote this book called Raising Rafi, the name of their son, um, that came out and she was like, he was just like writing this book while I was actually taking care of our son and I'm so mad about it. But if you read the book, I couldn't even bring myself to read all of the book, but the book itself is kind of about how Keith Gesson has this son who he just can't discipline, (laughs) who he just like sort of seems to like lack normal parental impulses. I mean, it's just like the extreme version of the gentle parenting, basically, where it's like, well, I just, you know, what we do now, what the modern evolved thing to do is just like let everybody feel and like conduct their lives and we're just there for them. And he does this with his young son and you're like, that seems no wonder it's a bit of a struggle for you. But like in this essay, you see his wife describe him doing this to her and said, well, you know, it's just like normal that people chase their dreams, even if their dreams mean treating their husbands like shit and like wasting all of their money. And I'm just I'm just here for it because that's what we do. Wouldn't you be here for it? And it it sort of presumes. On Emily, on Gold's side, it presumes that like her behavior is normal and acceptable. And like we're reading this and just like laughing along with her because like, yeah, I've totally been there. I haven't. And on his side, like, again, I just did this and this was like normal for me and I wasn't upset about it. You wouldn't be either. It's like, nope, I I would be upset. And there's like this, this weird friction between like how a normal person reads this essay. And it's just like, that was crazy. That was crazy. You're a bad person. That's annoying behavior. And how it's presented as like, oh, this is hilarious. Just like, Read this along with me. We'll have a laugh at the end. Um, a friend of mine described it as a sort of weird performance art almost, where you're you're watching someone write about how they learn to be a sort of a grown-up, even though she's 41, and sort of indulge them in this while and like take part in it as the audience, you're sort of the forced audience member of watching her perform this like ritualized (laughs) act of like self-revelation and like self-destruction and you're supposed to just cheer along. But you know what I mean? Like this gets to your your thing. Like it's like, what does it say about society? What does it say about our current moment that stuff like this is getting written? You know, I I just quibble with whatever your friend said uh, about this being performance art. Performance art is intentional. And like, you know, the performance artist, like, sure, we can mock Yoko Ono for some of her like post-Lenin stuff, right? But, like, she was intentionally putting on a performance. These these people are not self-aware, I don't think. I don't think they are. Maybe they are. Maybe the joke's on me, and maybe this is, like, like an elaborate sort of stage play of something. I don't think so, though. In the sense that, that like, this this feels, you know, it's, it's ripe for caricature for sure. But, like, these people are, are, are not caricaturing themselves or a set of 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 social circumstances i don't think they're just doing it they're just doing it like unself aware unselfconsciously just doing it and and what does it say and it's like it says a lot about the current moment of this like you know i i gestured at this thing that like you know maybe guessing himself and Probably the therapist was like, Emily, go ahead and write this essay. It would be really good for you, Emily. Let Let it it out. out. (laughs) And there's that. So there's that, there's that, like, there's that kind of unself aware 
very selfish therapy culture of the modern thing, which like barfs out essays like this, which is therapy for the writer, not for the reader. Mm -hmm. Then there's, there's like, I feel dirty having read this essay because I feel like I'm like participating in it somehow. Like, yes, yes. Like, but, and so, so there's that, there's that. Um, but, but it's, it's, you're, you're participating in it kind of like, a little bit like 20-year-old Christine trying to get it to end plus one parties, right? Because it's like, it's the goss of this scene. Rude. Right? Like, <laughs> but a, correct. But like, I mean, it's, it's so, so, so it's, it's a little bit of that sort of like scenester belonging in of this clue. But then like, again, you sort of, maybe it's just because I'm older, you like snap out of it and you're like, degenerates. These people are degenerates. This is a degenerate scene, a degenerate family of like, what happens if exactly that kind of like, permissive hippie culture gets so deep into the bloodstream that you have just like a, oh, whatever man sort of thing. Ah, anyway. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, I, I talked, I wrote in the, in the Monday note about this, like sort of weird schadenfreude about it. And it's like, you're, you're both angry at this person, but you're also just there like lapping up the words. And also the very fact that you're still angry at this person, but willing to engage in the reading is why it's published in New York magazine. Like also part of the frustrating thing, I think for a lot of readers and this, including myself, frankly. And I think that also gives a lot of this confessional writing, this weird frisson is that it's kind of a mingled combination of like shame and regret and envy sort of you're, you're reading about this person her confessional piece about how she's a terrible person and she didn't learn anything from it, basically. And you realize that, oh, this is this is like 7,000 words being published in a premier magazine. She is getting paid to share this with us. And I am contributing to that by reading this. And then you sort of think to yourself, or maybe you don't even think to yourself, but this is a feeling that's sort of underground. Like, what... Why is this person allowed to be so terrible and be rewarded for it with prestige, with, you know, outlets in, you know, really serious magazines? Like she professes to be a terrible person. And so she's famous, basically. Okay. New York magazine. It's not like an unserious magazine, but it is sort of like New York magazine. It's about New York. It is about this sort of stuff. It's like how we live, right? It's not like how we live New Yorker, which is literary minded. It's like it's. It's, I don't know, is it fair to say it's like, it's not hipper than New York. New York still has bigger cachet than New York, but it's, 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 it's less highbrow than New Yorker, right? Like less so, artistic and literary. Sure. I mean, it's less highbrow than yeah. the New Yorker, but I mean, that's also the thing about this particular couple, right? Like the reason why her insane personal essay was accepted to New York Magazine because she is because she is also... She contributes features to The New Yorker. You know, she was profiled in The New York Times. She has become famous and built a successful brand off of these antics. Right. And by sort of humoring that, we were also contributing to that success, but also resenting it in a sense. And it's like, who is allowed to sort of get away with this? Yeah. But again, you know, that's I guess that's a part that's like sort of confounding and like deeply irritating about this whole thing. Cause you said it was a confessional. I don't think it's confessional. She's not confessing anything. Right. Right. You have to feel bad to confess. Yeah. Right. It's more like it, it is, it's a personal essay. It's just like, 
and it's it's it is that like you know the distaste for it is is the 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 celebrity culture that's out of it and that's what you're contributing to by like talking about it like we're going to be talking about this for the entire hour and <laughs> yeah we're doing helping part, i mean doing we're, we're doing it yeah um but it's it's uh yeah and i you know i it's so you still love new york i i've i've like left it well behind at this point and like this is part of the reason you know like in a sense it's it's and every time I even like get sort of a, a whiff of it, it's still there, you know, like I have friends who are up there and, um, yeah, without like naming names, like, just like you, you catch a little whiff of like what goes on in New York. And it's like, on some level, everyone is like, I don't know, two and a half times removed from the Red Scare podcast and all of that. <laughs> And and these guys are too, like probably Definitely. one one step away from the, from all of that. Um, the Red Scare people are a little hipper than these people. These are has-beens now. Uh, the Red Scare is like defining that scene. But then you even hear something about like that podcast and like that scene, and it, it's got the whiff of this to it as well. And it's the only way I can describe it is the whiff of that, like you know, young making culture thing. Um, that is somehow unserious. And I wonder, you know, I even wonder sometimes like all the stuff, you know, the, the, the things that, that like somehow I'd lionized in my twenties reading about a New York times gone past, whether it was probably just as unserious back then. And just through the, like the lens of time, it's become that. And that's the other thing that sort of, I, I wonder about reading this Emily Gould thing, like whether, whether, you know, uh, the generation, two generations after me and you, they'll be like reading about Keith Gesson and his, you know, troubled, turbulent <laughs> marriage with the brilliant Emily Gould. And, and it'll, it'll have like, it'll have this aura of something. And then like old me will just be saying, no, man, that's New York. It's terrible. But you still love New York. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I mean, I still love New York, but I think you're maybe hitting on something when you described it as just unserious, mm. like fundamentally unserious. And I think that this is also a distinction between this kind of personal essay and the essays that we maybe really love that seem to stand the test of time in some ways. And actually, there's there's something about this essay that maybe has a kernel of that. But a lot of this writing often feels like it it's unserious. It doesn't really have a point. Like, what are we gaining from this? Is this connected to the larger world or human concerns in like any real sense? And actually in this essay, she it's frustrating, but it is also interesting because it does kind of tangle with these questions, some of which you bring up, Demir, about, you know, like what is marriage like what are you supposed to put up with like how does one relate to another person or forgive another person like those those are core questions that will stand the test of time you know and so i i can see this piece having larger relevance but i would say that many of the pieces in this genre so another piece that we haven't discussed yet but we should probably also bring up is the I put $50,000 in a box and handed it to a stranger. See, I'll defend that piece more, but like just one thing before we talk about that one. I, you know, so what, 
Does it matter that whatever lessons we glean from this Gould piece are unintentional? Does it matter that, like, you know, it's... Or, I mean, maybe we give, maybe I'm not giving her the benefit of the doubt. Maybe she's a genius, act, after all, and, you know, the mm -hmm. accolades she gets in 30 years would all be worthwhile because she's actually telling a, you know... A universal tale a of universal, hating, hating your husband and well, you know, faking of, leaving of, him. No, 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 but of, like, the difficulties of a marriage. You know, one could, one yeah. could, one could take this out. One could say if this was fictionalized, if this was, in fact, you know, a chapter in some novel... It would be a Bergman film. Yeah, right, right. Even still, I mean, it'd be better written, but like, you know what I mean? Like it's, does it matter? Does the intent matter that, that like, um, and again, who knows? I don't know these people. You may, you may have encountered Keith Guest and maybe even Emily Gould back in your, your, your twenties when you were in New York. But like, I, I, you know, maybe they are like that level of genius that this, that this odious essay is in fact meant to be everything that it's evoking in me and to some extent, you as well, and it's all meant to be some sort of deep meta criticism of things. I doubt it. I can't. I can't. I can't help but think that that's not true. But maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, does the intention matter? That's a that's a really good question. I. Yeah, I can't tell. I am not sure that the intention of like, oh, this is a this is actually going to be a deep reflection on sort of like what love and marriage look like over time was the point of this essay or if it really was a therapist being like write it down get it out and like review some books sell it it'll be great if yeah if it was purposeful i mean the the fact of the matter is though like it has it has elicited a lot of hate for this couple but also as you see in the comments and some of the discussion around the piece yeah, a lot of discussion around the bigger questions that it touches. Mm -hmm. So it is valuable in that in that sense. And I don't I don't know. I don't know if it matters. So the so intention. I think I think you've on the podcast chided me about this before, but I've never read that other essay. What was it? I'm gonna massacre it. You'll chide me more. Cat lady. What was it called? Cat person. Ah. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Well, so I mean, like, close, close enough. So, so I've never, I never, I never read Cat Cat Person, uh, but uh, you know, also confessional and also very much like, I mean, perhaps more more sympathetic, but also not 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 meant as anything more than a personal essay. Well, it was it was fiction, right? It was like auto fiction. Auto fiction, yeah. Right? I mean... Yes, by Kristen Rupanian in The New Yorker. Yeah. Like, at the height of Me Too, for, yeah. for the listeners. Right. But it was autofiction in the same sort of sense. Well, okay, so if it was, like, autofiction, then there's more intent there than this. But what's the difference between autofiction and this, I guess, I suppose, then, is that, like, that one just has a, a, a broader signaling of in artistic intent than this. That's it. Good question. I mean, a lot of autofiction really is just like a personal essay in disguise. I right. mean, that's that's literally what it is. Right. Um, and I think that that piece was that piece drew a lot of attention in its time because it hit a nerve. It hit something that a lot of people were feeling in that moment sort and made this. it visible. Sort of this, though, right? Yes. And I'm thinking about. If we think of sort of best essay anthologies or something, like will cat person appear? 
maybe not for its writing, but maybe because it expresses something about the zeitgeist. Right. And this essay by Emily Gold, like, actually, it is it is well written. I mean, you do have to hand it to her. She's a good writer. But maybe it's more interesting because it expresses something about the moment. Mm. And what it is expressing about the moment, frankly, is terrible. It's like the moment tells us to indulge our worst selves and be really cruel to our partners and then sort of like shimmy our way back, we guess, without actually having developed anything. But that's that's what we're doing yeah. in this moment. Yeah. It reminds me a lot, and we'll be discussing this on the pod pretty soon, actually, of this polyamory memoir mm-hmm. in which the woman is, it's not well written. The woman sounds deranged and sad, <laughs> even as she writes the book, but it's just like such an illustration of the moment we're in, in which the solution that is given to one's unhappiness or one's dissatisfaction is to like go find yourself by either, I don't know, becoming polyamorous or upping your SSRIs until you're manic and then attempting to leave your husband but failing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the other essay you mentioned, the Charlotte Coles. Yeah, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Well, in any case, that this one was much less offensive to me because <laughs> this one at least at least has the the pretension of of you know being service journalism of sorts. It's being like, okay, so there's as you said in, in your Monday note, there's there's plenty of sort of like class shot in front of here. It's like, okay, uh, you know, well off, you know, the functional woman. Uh, seemingly happy marriage just happens to have fifty thousand yeah, dollars lying around i never uh, believed it could happen to me no but you know what i mean like i that that's it, even that apart leaving leaving aside the fact that she has like loose fifty thousand between the couch cushions or whatever that she can just like hand over um is is it is it is it's it's it it, it, it it's it's all of that is a, a powerful testament to how you know we should know that we're all scammable and that ultimately human uh emotions are gameable and that's what scammers are really good at and it mm-hmm. is that it's like yeah we like to think that it's you know uh hoarders and like weird you know single old miserable people that are prey for all of this because they have no outlets and nothing and they like you know or just don't know how the internet works or any of that but like the reality is is that um Clearly, there's a script that these scammers have. They know exactly what pressure points to press on this woman, and they defraud her of fifty thousand dollars. And like, I mean, she's almost hypnotized throughout the whole thing. That's useful, right? I mean, nothing to hate there. What'd you hate? <laughs> no, I mean that's that's an interesting way. It it is meant to be service journalism. Yeah. In that she is a financial advice columnist ostensibly telling us how not to get scammed from her own experience. Yeah. Um, I mean, actually, one of the things that you can look at to to compare and like note the similarities of the two essays is that they're kind of both supposed to be service journalism in a sense. Or, I mean, the gold essay is titled The Lure of Divorce, which implies that many of us are being lured to divorce and perhaps we should not take the bait and in the end she doesn't and actually seems probably we can all see that she's probably better off for it is her husband unclear the other one is sort of an in actually the classic confessional essay style title basically in like i never thought it would happen to me yeah. um kind of essay and that is more direct about 
don't be scammed like I was. In some sense, both are are almost writing about almost falling for a kind of scam, almost falling for the lure of divorce, which is zeitgeisty in Gold's case, or falling <laughs> falling for a bunch of people who are pretending to be the CIA in Coles's case. I think I think that the the gold essay produced an intense emotional reaction among readers because some of the actions that she describes and the situation that she describes feels very visceral to people who have been in relationships, who have or have been partners, who have wrestled with this emotional landscape themselves and managed not to act like terrible people throughout, or maybe didn't manage, but they recognize that there is something wrong with her behavior that she doesn't seem to fess up to. And then in the scam piece, the frustration lies more with people who maybe, maybe have been lured by a scam, but just didn't do it (laughs) and just feel like they are smart enough to not really need this advice. Hmm. And it's frustrating. It feels frustrating to many readers that like this, like you're going to tell me not to drop a shoebox full of 50 bands into like a random Mustang that drives up to my house. Like I knew that all, like I didn't need this from you. Well, and it's annoying. In fact, that you think I'm as stupid as you and that you are this stupid. And yet similar to the gold one, have this fairly prestigious platform, have all these resources can like force me to go on this journey with you. Although no one's being forced. We're just sort of being drawn along. Yeah. That enrages readers in some sense. Yeah. Again, though, we're back to giving gold a lot of credit. Um, which maybe is fair again, like just in the course of the conversation, I'm, I'm realizing that, you know, maybe I'm, maybe, maybe there is real genius here and, and it's all sort of like an elaborate sort of thing. And there's no, there's no reason to assume that, that like she's as unreflective and awful as, as her main character in her essay, but who knows, maybe she is. Um, but, but, you know, the thing about the, the Cole's essay where I'd push back on all of that is that, um, what I think was resonant to me about it is the subtle way that the scam works um, between sort of engaging in like an increasingly improbable narrative. But the part that jumped out at me is like the threats, the threats that come through every so often, as soon as she's like straying mm-hmm. and, and um, again, like to, to get people oriented as we, we talk yeah. about this because <laughs> really it's, it's a weird thing um i read it i read it reasonably quickly today uh so fill in any gaps that i missed but like basically um she's contacted by what she thinks is amazon mm-hmm. they say that there have been some weird uh charges to her business accounts she's like i don't have business accounts they're like oh well there's two here in your name we're involved in some investigation with the Federal Trade Commission against this this scam. Would you get on the con? Would you mind if I put you in touch with them? She gets in touch with someone from the quote unquote Trade Commission, who's like, "Yeah, we're investigating all this stuff." Like, somehow talks her into like, you know, uh, that all of her assets are in trouble, but has a lot of information on her because there has been identity theft and all of this, and she's the victim of it. 
And and um, in all of this sort of stuff, like constantly is like isolating her. Says so like you can't talk to your lawyer, you can't talk to your husband, you can't talk to anyone. Don't tell anyone. Don't yeah. tell anyone. Which is again on the top of it is kind of like a uh, like duh, you know. Obviously, go tell someone. But but to me, what was so resonant about it is like that plus the threats plus the feeling that the stranger knows something about you, knows everything about you. In fact, from what you can expect from talking to a complete stranger, immediately imparts. A sense that this is the government of some sort. And mm-hmm. so all of a sudden, this, from the FTC, you're onto the CIA, and there's like a CIA investigator. Why isn't the CIA investigating domestic financial crimes? Never mind. But like, still, like, throughout, and every time she wavers, they just like yank the chain, and it's like authority. And she's back into it and doesn't until like the very end, she realizes she's been scammed out of $50,000. And it's too late. The car's <laughs> driven off. And to me, you know, like, I, I, like I said, uh, just put all the, the 50,000 lying around and all the sort of like class, you know, angst you might have reading this and like the question of privilege. To me, it's like it's actually a jarring um, account of of basically almost like a, a psychology experiment. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like those things that you've seen, you know, like you can get like normal people to execute someone with a push of a button. Just the opposite of it. It's just like how suggestion works and how power dynamics work and how like a good scammer can actually just bully you into giving him fifty thousand dollars. That to me was like the real sort of thing there. And again, you know, whether it's courageous or not of her to like do this, that's like a meta level. I'm not that interested in exploring but you know kudos to her like it was it was an accountable it was it was a, it was a good accounting of what to me just read like a good lord we human beings like <laughs> you you can really if you know what you're doing you can manipulate the shit out of people yeah so so what did we hate about at the royal we i'm using the royal we yeah. hate about this one that was different from the the gold one i think the response i think in in digging into it with you actually the response to the gold piece was almost an emotional visceral response of like how how could you be like this as a person and be a bad person in public and want me to sympathize with you i'm angry that i'm being asked to sympathize with you and also being drawn along with your story Mm. i think the cowl's essay i think you're right actually that the message the sort of story of how she was yanked basically is actually like fascinating and scary And unfortunately, she really only kind of gets into that at the end where she talks about how um, the the mode of coerced confessions, like sort of what torture is used basically to get information out of her is kind of what she was scammed with. That's it for part one, dear listeners. There's a lot more where that came from. If you're not yet a paying subscriber, please head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live and become one. Help support our work. Hope to see you in the bonus.